0: marking the one-year anniversary since the shockwaves of June 24, 2022. That's when the U.S. Supreme Court issued its landmark ruling taking away the constitutional right to abortion, negating nearly five decades of legal precedent. The controversial decision pushed the abortion decision to all 50 states.
1: Honestly, the state legislature has decided that the best outcome is simply for people to become pregnant, to bring up the birth rate in our state. But they do not care if the person who carries that child survives. They believe that they have plenty of people who would be willing to take in new babies, to be able to adopt, to be able to take care of these new children that come in. But for the women, the women are the collateral damage.
2: The effect on women's reproductive health has been enormous. Here to share their perspectives are Dr. Emenia Palacio, the president and CEO of the Guttmacher Institute, and Robin Marty, the director of operations for the West Alabama Women's Center, which had to stop performing abortions one year ago because of the Supreme Court decision.
3: We didn't get here overnight. These have been long, long-laid plans, decades of planning, decades of funding, decades of winning small local elections, state elections and national elect- elections, and years of packing the courts uh, with uh, judges who would make certain kinds of ruling. So we're not gonna unwind this uh, in the next 12 months.
2: And this is Conversations on Healthcare.
0: Well, welcome, Dr. Palacio, to Conversations on Healthcare. And welcome back uh, to our program, Robin.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: Yeah, it's good to see
3: you you both. Great to join you.
0: Let's start with you, Robin. Uh, We last talked about a year ago. And at that time, the Dobbs decision had just been overturned uh, a constitutional right to abortion. And that led to the implementation of the Alabama law banning abortions with no exceptions for rape and incest. Please share with us what the past year has been like.
1: Yes, Um, well, it hasn't been easy by any means. Um, Immediately afterward, we ended up losing both the Montgomery Reproductive Health Services Clinic, that one closed. Um, We lost one of our two Planned Parenthoods, the Planned Parenthood in Mobile, Alabama closed. So at this point, there is a Birmingham Planned Parenthood that is seeing patients. We are seeing patients and there's a Huntsville clinic that is seeing patients. And we are all basically doing STI testing, reproductive health care. We are now doing free prenatal care and pregnancy confirmation. Um, We also know that there are a number of people who are going to hospitals with miscarriages and are having difficulty being seen. Um, That is happening repeatedly at our one hospital here in Tuscaloosa. Um, We know that we have just finished our first legislative session since this decision came down and there has been no introduction of any efforts to expand contraception. There has been no effort to expand prenatal care, and the only thing that the legislature has done to address this is they have now made it easier and faster for people to be able to adopt and for people to be able to relinquish rights to their newborns. Hmm. Well, uh,
2: this is a hard question uh, to ask, but Robin, we can assume women in your state are uh, carrying to terms sometimes where previously they would have had, and. Made uh, use of other options. How are they coping? Uh, what are you seeing on the ground? Is there support for uh, women? Is there support for them after delivery? What are you seeing?
1: There really isn't much. Um, one thing that has surprised me somewhat by what we're seeing in Alabama is that so far our hospitals are not reporting any sort of real increase in childbirth. Um, What that tells us is what we always kind of assumed, which is it does not matter if abortion is legal or illegal, people will find a way to get an abortion. And I believe that a lot of people are probably seeking out medication online through the mail. Um, we assume that because it was already difficult for people to be able to get to our clinics in our state and so the idea that now they have to travel as far as Georgia Florida um, North Carolina in order to get care we don't think that's really happening and we're not seeing a lot of it Um, one of the most frustrating things that is happening for us is the fact that there has been no expansion of Medicaid which means that for people who are unable to access birth control and then become pregnant they They are able to get onto Medicaid once they've confirmed their pregnancy. However, the state has not made it any easier for them to do that. In order to confirm a pregnancy to get onto Medicaid, a person has to see a doctor in person and get a confirmation of pregnancy, and that then starts their four to six week wait in order to get approved for Medicaid. Only after that can they actually start prenatal care with a Medicaid approved doctor, which then is another period of time that they have to wait in order to be able to find a doctor who will see them. So what we are doing is we are giving people free prenatal care from the point in which their pregnancy has been confirmed, which we are also doing for them. And then we continue that care until the point in which they find another doctor who will take over that care. Or at this point, we are now starting to have our first few patients who are about to give birth.
0: Wow. What what an enormous amount of choreography that must go on to to uh, get coverage. And, you know, Robin, we've been following your work since we last talked a year ago, and you wrote in Time Magazine in March the following, as bad as things have been since the Dobbs decision, without support for contraception, prenatal care, and other reproductive health services, the crisis will only grow worse, and the next person getting pregnant may not survive at all. Uh, You wrote that three months ago. Uh, what, What do you want us to know today?
1: Um, I want you to know that there still is nothing that the state is doing in order to address this crisis. We have 25 hospitals that are now on the verge of closing because without Medicaid expansion, they cannot afford to stay open. Um, We have no doctors. And honestly, the state legislature has decided that the best outcome is simply for people to become pregnant, to bring up the birth rate in our state, but they do not care if the person who carries that child survives. They believe that they have plenty of people who would be willing to take in new babies, to be able to adopt, to be able to take care of these new children that come in. But for the women, the women are the collateral damage. Hmm.
2: Well, I just want to uh, highlight, uh, because I think uh, all of our listeners, as well of all of us here, of course, are very aware of the tragic Death of uh, the elite uh, Olympic uh, contender, Tori Bowie, uh, recently uh, late in pregnancy, probably due to preeclampsia, or that's what's uh, supposed. Uh, we know we have these horrific health disparities uh, in maternity outcomes, even regardless of socioeconomic uh, status and all of the issues that you're discussing with us just make the situation more fraught uh, with worry and with the very real risk of of death uh, for people. Uh, but maybe, uh, Robin, just, uh, one, one more, uh, question to you on that legal challenge to FDA's approval of Mifepristone, uh, the drug most commonly used in medication abortion regimens. I understand women in Alabama who use these pills, even if they got them, uh, via mail order from out of state can be prosecuted. Uh, is it your assumption that women are going ahead with this anyway? And have there been any instances of prosecution?
1: So we are not concerned as much about people who are taking the medication being prosecuted at this moment um, because the legal the legal hurdles for them were always the same. Um, it was always illegal for them to be able to get medication from outside of the state. Um, there are chemical endangerment laws that they could be charged under. Um, there are not following a prescription. If the state wants to be able to put somebody in jail over managing their own abortion, they have many ways that they can do that it doesn't matter whether these medications are considered legal in our state or not legal in our state and that's one thing that i want to make sure that a national audience understands because with this mifepristone lawsuit lots of people have gotten very upset about what it could do to access to abortion but the reality is there is still misoprostol. there are still many ways that people can access abortion and the worst case scenario for blue states is something that we would kill for down in the south to be able to have misoprostol. to be able to have a procedural abortion. We have nothing. And so we want to make sure that people understand that in a lot of ways, this lawsuit has distracted blue states into uh, huddling around and making sure that they can take care of themselves. And so all of the resources that were being poured into states where abortion is illegal, they've all dried up because we've been divided by it.
0: Robin, let me get one last question in before we talk to Dr. Palacio. There have been discussions about your clinic providing direct referrals to out-of-state abortion clinics, but that hasn't happened. Why not? And what, what's the threat that you're uh, worried about?
1: Yeah, so we have been informed ever since the Dobbs decision came down that according to our attorney general, there is a criminal conspiracy charge that exists in the state of Alabama. And according to the lawmaker, it is that if you provide any sort of information or resources that leads somebody to do something outside of the state that is considered illegal in the state in which they come from, that in itself is a crime. And so for us, It has shut down our abortion funds it has shut down our practical support networks and it's even stopped clinics from being able to say here is your closest abortion clinic or here is where you can go if you are six weeks along here is where you could go if you are 14 weeks along here is where you could go if you are 20 weeks along we are not allowed to provide that information because according to our attorney general the provision of that information would be a crime on us, even though it is not a crime for that person to then go ahead and have the abortion in that state.
2: Thank you for that, Robin, and for sharing that with our audience, very, very important to get out. Dr. Palacio, you lead the Guttmacher Institute, which is focused on research and policy to advance sexual and reproductive health and rights. Let's take what Robin uh, has uh, told us and broaden it out. What's the state of reproductive rights in the United States a year after the Supreme Court's decision?
3: Thank you, and I'm really happy to be here with you. I have to say that um, so much of what Robin laid out from her boots on the ground perspective, uh, really, I think, belies many of the talking points behind these egregious policies. So I'd just like to sort of build on what she said and sort of talk about the state of, of play a little bit. So really, this this uh, the Dobbs ruling, which happened June 24th, we're coming up on, on its anniversary very shortly. Uh, that's, as you said in your introduction, sent the decisions back to the states. Um, was not just about um, sending things back to the states, and it wasn't just about people uh, being able to make decisions on a state-by-state basis. Right now, the, the rush to make abortion illegal has been fast and furious. There are 13 states where it is banned completely, and in the state of Wisconsin, it's de facto uh, on hold because there is a uh, legal uncertainty. But what Robin really talked about in terms of that there have been no additional resources for contraception, no additional resources to protect people in pregnancy, no expansion of Medicaid, I think really sort of talks about what the historical context are of reproductive health rights and justice in our United States and what the history is. This isn't just about abortion. This is about uh, the dignity and the humanity of people making their most Intimate decisions uh, possible. And there's uh, good research that shows when you deny a person an abortion, that there are significant consequences of being able to to unable to attain uh, a desired abortion. This is by the turnaway study, their economic consequences, their consequences for their children, their sort of long-term consequences. The data are clear and they really sort of substantiate what you heard from Robin in terms of the day-to-day impact on people's lives. And her point about that people are that making abortion illegal doesn't diminish people's desire to obtain an abortion. We have um, really robust um, evidence from our global work that says just that. If you look at 150 countries, and we've produced country-specific abortion incidence rates, you look at countries where abortion is highly restricted and countries where abortion is not restricted legally, abortion rates themselves don't vary that much. What you do when you restrict legal access to abortion is you don't diminish the rate of abortion, you diminish the safety of abortion. You drive people underground, you make it harder for people, Um, to get abortion. And frankly, most uh, unfortunately, the methods that we've used as a research center to ascertain abortion rates in highly restricted environments, we are now having to um, brush off some of those those methods to obtain abortion rates uh, here in restricted states where individuals, where doctors, where systems are at legal risk if they uh, perform abortions and if they admit to performing abortions and if they assist with the performance of abortions. Hmm.
0: Well, Dr. Palacio, thanks for illuminating the, the implications and also talking about this rush uh, to uh, ban uh, abortions. Uh, but as I think about uh, uh, Georgia, which bans abortions at about six weeks of pregnancy, uh, Uh, most often before many women know they're pregnant. I'm wondering what the data tells you about how women are responding to this. Um, uh, And I know South Carolina uh, has a similar law. I think it's being held up right now. Uh, But as you said, there's a larger rush across the board happening to limit uh, women's access.
3: Well, it's a rush, and it's a disingenuous rush, I would say, to sort of couch these gestational bans. These gestational bans have one and one only one aim, which is to render abortion unattainable for women. Um, when you have a ban that uh, implements a six-week gestational ban before people are even aware that they're pregnancy, that is a de facto ban on abortion right if you it it limits people's access it means that people have to travel it means that people have to either and we're talking about the burden falling disproportionately on folks who have historically faced inequities, right? Brown and black people, people Mm -hmm. who live in rural communities where travel is hard, people who don't have incomes. So if you think about the on the ground effect of either a gestational ban or an outright ban, you may have to give up your a few days of work to go access an abortion someplace else. Well, that may lead to a loss of job. You may have a loss of income. Most people who have abortions have other children already. So you have to arrange for childcare. You, um, you may have to have a child that you don't want to have if, you're, if you can't get your abortion in time for, this, for, for these gestational bans. So the consequences are intentional, they are deliberate, they are protean, and they fall hardest on the people who don't have access to other services.
1: If I can just jump in with what Dr. Glockio said, Um, one of the things that we are seeing that is the most alarming about people who are seeking out abortions under these gestational bans is the fact that a person who is intending to try to seek out an abortion is a person who is not getting prenatal care.
2: What do you expect to seeing as we move closer to the elections?
1: I believe that as we move closer to the election, we are going to see the right do what they always do, which is try to force abortion as a talking point, but try to force it as abortion that exists only in the third trimester, that allegedly is happening on um, infants right before they're about to be born. Those are the only only ways, the only talking points they can bring out that bring people to their side. The reality is that the right has now instituted a rule that essentially says that you can only run for them if you believe that abortion must be completely illegal, that there may be no exceptions whatsoever. And that is something that progressives need to use in order to make people understand. We just had a recent um, survey come out, I believe it was Gallup, that said that 70% of people believe that abortion should be a right and that 70 percent of people believe that medication abortion should be available at any time we know that the majority of people and then the majority of voters believe that a person should have the right at least at some point to decide whether or not they want to carry a pregnancy to term and those are the ways that we need to talk about it we need to talk about it as Are you going to force a person to carry a child to term regardless of what it does to that person's health? Are you going to force every person to carry a child to term regardless of how that child was conceived? Are you going to force every person to carry a child to term regardless of what it does to their economic health? That is where we need to be having this discussion. But we also need to recognize the fact that we can have a progressive majority in the House, in the Senate, and in the White House And we can still throw abortion rights under the bus because we saw that happen in 2009 with the Affordable Care Act. So it's not just about getting people elected, it's about getting people to follow through on their promises and understand that this is an issue that matters at the least to more than half of the nation. And we need to be able to produce children when we are physically and mentally ready for it.
0: But Dr. Palacio, let me just pull the thread a little on that, uh, because there have been some interesting developments that sort of tie into the data that Robin was just sharing uh, with us in states like Michigan and Kansas and other advanced reproductive rights uh, who are who are moving forward. With that what does that tell us uh, about uh, uh, the state of uh, this conversation across the country?
3: I think what it tells us is that uh, in some ways um, the. The efforts to render abortion inaccessible once they succeeded in that in so many places that it really sort of uh, something that for many folks, uh, not for those of us who've been tracking it, but for many folks seems unthinkable and the unthinkable now requires protection. Um, so yes, in states like Kansas, in states like Michigan, there have been referendum that now protect uh, abortion uh, very specifically, uh, restrict the 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 ability for legislatures to render uh, to take away abortion rights. I think it's important as we think about politics with a capital P to mm-hmm. also think about democracy with a small D because I think that these issues are interrelated. And this is one area where I think the media has a tremendous opportunity and and I would submit responsibility uh, to sort of shed light and the resources to be able to do things like follow the money. Many of the movements that we're talking about are not just isolated movements, right? When you think about the movements for uh, anti-immigration movements, when you think about the movements that are really robustly anti-racial diversity, right, and mm-hmm. and anti-racial uh, equity, the movements that are anti-voting, that are restricting the rights of who, of brown and black people, if you look at where anti-voting is happening, these are movements that are not happening uh, without conversation. There are movements that are sharing funding, and frankly, there are movements that are being exported out of the United States into other countries. And so, again, my plea to the media in particular is to follow the money and shed light, because I think our citizenry needs to know how all of these anti-reproductive rights, anti-immigration rights, anti-voting rights are really all anti-democracy.
1: I have to follow up and just say one of the things that I have really noticed as a researcher on abortion rights and abortion access is the fact that starting a few years ago, once these new laws were introduced, they all became introduced with felony punishments, um, aiding and abetting felony punishment criminal conspiracy, felony punishment. And that in itself is an attempt to destroy democracy because they know that the people who are going to be assisting someone to get an abortion, a family member, um, a good friend, those are all people who are probably in is going to support abortion. And hence that means if they can get them arrested on a felony in states like Alabama, they are never going to be able to vote again. Alabama never returns voting rights to a felon. And so in a lot of ways, It's true that um, reproductive justice, reproductive rights, all of these things are voting rights. Voting rights are a reproductive justice issue.
2: Well, maybe your question, to both of you on, on the rights of people and, and, and the concerns for all people in America. We certainly hear about the challenges of access to health care in rural areas, in particular health care writ large, as well as maternity deserts and difficulty with access to maternity care. But uh, an analysis from the Association of American Medical Colleges found that uh, newly graduated uh, physicians who are applying to their medical residency programs were likely to avoid practicing in states with the most stringent abortion restrictions, is that an unintended consequence uh, that the abortion movement never considered? Do you think that this point is being made about the real impact, particularly on our rural states?
3: So I would say that there is very little that I think is completely uh, not hasn't been considered. I think that the expectation that there would be a a diminishment of uh, available OBGYNs who uh, were willing to produce abortion in these states was not something that was an unintended consequence. That said, I do think that the consequences are going to be bigger and more and more significant than uh, than was intended, and that I think that this is going to play out in the public sphere. Residents, medical students are largely of reproductive age, and I don't think this is; these are just decisions about where are they going to be able to practice. Uh, as OBGYNs for the craft. I think that over the next couple of years, you may start to see a diminishment of cardiologists and internists and pediatricians, not because they're making choices about their practice of reproductive health services, but they're making choices about their decisions as people who are embarking at the beginning of their reproductive lives and where do they want to choose to live in order to be able to sort of, and what kinds of healthcare do they want to be able to access? As they set about making the decisions about whether or not to have children and whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. So I think as people start to realize that they may not only have uh, diminished access to getting an abortion, but eventually they may have diminished access to getting treatment for their heart attacks, I think is something that we haven't seen yet. And again, that we need to, to really, really track.
0: I'm wondering for both of you, sort of a final question, where do we go from here? You both have interesting perspectives, one local, one national. Uh, what, do you, uh, what do you see the next 12 months looking like?
1: From a local standpoint, and honestly, local is all that we can do right now down here. That's all we have the resources for. It's all we have the footprint to be able to handle. Um, We were, when Dobbs came down, we had about three months to try to figure out how to keep our clinic open. And it is a year later and we are still open. And we are still in a position where we have three months to keep our clinic open, Um, but we have made it a year. We've made it a year despite the state refusing to offer us any form of grants. We have made it a year without the state being willing to work with us in any way with any of our prenatal care, um, our HIV care, any of the things that we are doing. We have continued to provide this care to people for free. We do not turn people away when they cannot pay. And that is what we're going to continue to do for the next year because we know that the first year is an adjustment year. It's the second year where we are going to see the people who Mm -hmm. truly cannot get out of state or be able to access abortion. It's when we're going to start to see the people who gave birth the first time now get pregnant again and give birth the second time way too soon without time for their bodies to recover. This is the point in which we are going to see real healthcare outcomes happen. And so we are going to do everything we can to continue to be here in order to address that.
3: You know what Robin I think uh, spoke to was the, the type of resiliency that it requires for as we're moving forward. We didn't get here overnight. These have been long, long long-laid plans, decades of planning, decades of funding, decades of winning small local elections, state elections, and national elections, and years of packing the courts uh, with uh, judges who would make certain kinds of ruling. Mm -hmm. So we're not gonna unwind this uh, in the next 12 months. But I do think what we can do is start to lay the groundwork. We already have groundwork for uh, some federal legislation that could be protective. We have the Women's uh, Health and the the WIPA, the Women's Health uh, Protection Act. We have each, which would restore, which would eliminate the Hyde Amendment. We have HEAL, which would... it allowed immigrant women access to Medicaid. So we have several pieces of federal legislation that are written, that are being carried by national advocates that have been introduced in Congress multiple times, and we need to get them across the finish line. And that's where elections really do matter.
2: And thank you both for joining us for this very important anniversary discussion. Uh, Thank you to our audience. There's more online about conversations on healthcare, including way to sign up for email updates. Our address is chcradio.com. Dr. Palacio and Robin, thank you so much for your continued work.
1: Thank, thank you very much. much.
2: Absolutely. This copyrighted program is produced by Conversations on Healthcare and cannot be reproduced or retransmitted in whole or in part without the express written consent from Community Health Center, Inc. The views expressed by guests are their own, and they do not necessarily reflect the opinion of conversations on Healthcare or its affiliated entities.
3: Fifty years ago, a small band of idealists set out to change their community. Peace and Health is the story of renegades, innovators, caregivers, and community leaders who discover that change is possible. This improbable journey is captured in compelling detail by author Charles Barber. Cornell professor Dr. Joseph J. Finns says it reads like a novel, but it's all true. Peace and health available now.